alaikum. Welcome back. You've tuned into Liberated Voices. It is our 10th episode. So, inshallah, we've got special lineup for you today. Um, and before we begin Ramadan Kareem, I am your host, Insia Fatima. And I am your co-host, Hussein Abudar Ali Diakidi. And today we'll be talking about the shifting politics or geopolitics of the Middle East uh, with our guest, Dr. Saeed Khan. Uh, Saeed Khan is a lecturer at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, specializing in Islamic and Middle Eastern history. And we are also joined by Keniz Hezbani, who has a master's degree in international politics and human rights. She also works behind the scenes at Liberated Voices. So welcome to you both. Assalamualaikum everyone and uh, I'd like to also uh, wish everyone a Ramadan Mubarak, a Ramadan Kareem uh, as we embark on uh, on this very special and holy month. Assalamualaikum as well. Um, Ramadan Mubarak as well everyone. Ramadan Mubarak, it's great to have you both on board. So I think to start with we have to look at the deal that's happened um, between Iran and Saudi because I think this is out of all the things that are going on right now in the Middle East and all these different countries that are talking to each other at the first um, that have haven't had relations for a long time. This is the one that's that's really at the center of everything. That's really pushing everything because they've two regional giants really. Um, I'm just wondering um, what what Said uh, thinks of the. The deal and how it came about because it's kind of a surprise i don't I'm not really certain myself what's happened you know it's interesting i was uh, last week in uh in baku azerbaijan uh when uh the, the the reports came out and i was struck by a few things uh first and foremost the fact as you said uh that it happened uh and in the way that it happened and who really brought the deal together i think uh provided a big wow factor for so many of us. In the United States, uh, I can tell you that uh, the deal has uh, really received very scant coverage. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we could say that the reason for that is uh, because uh, the United States is obsessed with other things, whether it is Ukraine or uh, the impending and perhaps imminent indictment and arrest of former President Donald Trump. But I think it's more than that. I would actually suggest that the absence of coverage uh, is in part the same kind of bewilderment, uh, bewilderment and, and surprise, caughting, uh, catching a lot of people off guard. But also I would suggest that it has a little bit to do with shame. Uh, I think that there is a colossal embarrassment and perhaps an acknowledgement of the receding uh, American influence uh, not only in the Middle East, but perhaps more broadly on, on the global scale. Uh, the very idea that of all countries, China uh, coming in, uh, almost uh, in, in, in the cloak of, of, of darkness, uh, and being able to make this deal mm. uh, must have shocked quite a few people uh, at the U.S. State Department. Mostly, I would say, because uh, there was the presumption that the Saudis would have perhaps uh, leaked some of the information or would have notified or tipped off uh, Washington that this was underway. But 
if you look at this deal, it was happening while the Saudis were also uh, negotiating, if you will, uh, mm. with the United States and with uh, possibly Israel. Uh, the big inquiry that was happening uh, in Washington uh, had to do with whether Saudi Arabia could be courted to become yet another country to sign on to the so-called Abraham Accords. Uh, this would have been seen as uh, a major uh, win for the United States, ostensibly for, uh, for Israel to bring, bring the largest of the Gulf states uh, on board uh, with this uh, mm. particular initiative. Uh, and we saw that there were statements that were being uh, made uh, from Riyadh saying that, yes, uh, we would consider uh, doing so if we received assistance on our civilian uh, nuclear program. Well, while uh, it seems that the United States and Israel were chewing on that, uh, it seemed at the very same time uh, there were negotiations underway with Beijing and uh, the Saudis felt that they received uh, an adequate uh, and a satisfactory deal uh, by uh, cutting it with China uh, and normalizing relations with not Israel, but in fact with uh, with Iran. But do you think that maybe the BRICS played a part because both Saudi and Iran have applied for the BRICS and uh, it's almost felt like China was saying, if you want to join us, you have to get along. Um, it's showing uh, that this, also Algeria is, is applied to join the BRICS. So I feel like you know, the, the way it looks now is three Muslim countries applied. Um, other countries like Indonesia, Turkey, um, there was a few more, uh, UAE even, and a few other Muslim countries have sh shown interest. I think Nigeria recently as well now. It could be... So when you're, when you're talking about the BRICS, of course, you're talking about this... Uh... Uh, what started off at the core with Brazil, mm. Russia, uh, India, and and China. Yeah. Uh, I suppose what we could uh, see the BRICS as being is uh, in, in some ways uh, how back during the Cold War, we used to talk about the movement of non-aligned states, uh, mm. the whole idea of the so-called third world. And with no uh, real uh, coincidence, we're talking about countries that were uh, by and large marginalized uh, and in some ways demonized uh, mm. throughout the Cold War because they, uh, there was a demand that they take sides uh, and particularly uh, align themselves with, uh, with, the, with the Western uh, alliance. Mm. I think that that may have something to do with it, but I, I'm not really sure if there is the need for the formalization of the acronym to then uh, include Saudi Arabia and all. Because remember, uh, the geostrategic uh, relationships already exist uh, with BRICS nations. Uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia have had uh, a very sustained relationship, especially more recently with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman over oil. Uh, Russia uh, has uh, uh, certainly been interested in uh, Saudi oil production and output and regulating uh, the, uh, the amount of production uh, uh, by the barrel. With the crisis in uh, the Ukraine and with the sanctions that Russia has had to uh, cope with, uh, it is certainly advantageous for Russia to have uh, the price of oil high uh, in order to then offset what uh, may be the economic impact that the war is having on it. 
Of course, what we find now is that the price of oil is actually going down. Uh, now oil is uh, trading at roughly uh, $65 a barrel. At the same time, Russia has been successful in circumventing sanctions when it comes to putting its oil on the market with the help of countries like India, which have been refining it, uh, which creates, of course, a very sticky situation for the West. On the one hand, the United States and the UK are actively courting New Delhi and the Modi regime, willing to overlook uh, the uh, policies of Hindutva, willing even to overlook uh, the policies of uh, suppressing the press, including the flagship BBC, for its uh, uh, broadcasting of a documentary that was critical of, uh, of Modi when he was chief minister of the Gujarat in 2002 with the uh, pogroms against, uh, against Muslims. So uh, the Saudis already have a very robust relationship with New Delhi. They have a robust relationship with Moscow. They have a robust relationship with Beijing. Uh, over the last couple of years, uh, China has in fact been helping develop uh, Saudi Arabia's civilian nuclear program. So what this has really shown is that the trust dividend between Riyadh and uh, uh, Beijing has certainly uh, grown. Uh, there already was a trust dividend between Tehran and Beijing uh, with the uh, pledge that uh, China made uh, to invest $400 billion over the next 25 years uh, in Iran's infrastructure. So when you have two parties who may not necessarily see eye to eye with one another, at the very least, having trust in uh, what is now seen as perhaps for the first time in the Middle East, uh, an honest broker in the form of China is mm -hmm. a welcome change and one that uh, both uh, Tehran and Riyadh have clearly shown that they're receptive uh, to having that kind of trilateral negotiation. Uh, so it's true when you say honest broker, I think um, when you look at the US and Russia, that we've got more involved in the actual politics, whilst China, traditionally, like in Africa, I think we've seen that they like to stay out of the politics themselves and work with whoever. So I think that might be um, appealing to to a lot of um, Arab countries in particular at the moment, and and to um, Iran and perhaps Turkey. I'm just wondering, do you think um, that this deal might, because there's seen all, almost like the three regional powers of Iran, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia? Turkey was kind of in the middle of the two. You think Turkey will feel isolated by this this deal? On the contrary, I think that Turkey will see itself as having uh, now uh, an equal role in the shaping of the Middle East. Uh, and we see this with um, a renewed uh, rapprochement between Ankara and Riyadh. Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia has in fact um, injected some much needed capital uh, into uh, the Turkish economy. Uh, the Turkish inflation rate is quite high. Uh, it also uh, suffers from uh, an enormous uh, uh, debt uh, incurment. And so the very idea then that uh, Prime, uh, President Erdogan is willing to uh, accept uh, Saudi funding uh, is in and of itself uh, rather remarkable. Uh, Turkey has now uh, acquiesced to the fact that it cannot uh, handle things by itself, uh, that it uh, cannot uh, rely upon its own self-reliance 
that uh, the situation is dire enough uh, that it needs more friends, not fewer friends. And also the fact that Turkey is geographically positioned where it is. Uh, it is not uh, an energy producer by itself, but it is certainly an energy conduit. Uh, makes it arguably as important strategically as those countries around it, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, uh, that, that, that produce it. So I think that all of these dynamics uh, move toward two new realities. Uh, one is the fact that the Middle East, uh, nearly 100 years after its last uh, major shaping after World War I, is being reshaped. Uh, and in many ways, with uh, both its own agency in doing so, as well as that of new actors in the region. I mean, if you think about how momentous this is, uh, only a few years ago, uh, Russia did not have much of a direct presence within the Middle East. It was certainly an arms supplier to countries like Egypt, Iraq, and Syria, but it really didn't have, quote unquote, boots on the ground. Uh, since the debacle of the Syria crisis, now we find Russia is directly and physically present both with its naval base at Latakia uh, as well as its air force base. Uh, and it is an undeniable uh, influence and uh, presence that has to be contended with in the region. And then, of course, seemingly out of nowhere, uh, this dark horse uh, of, of, of China coming in, which brings us to the second reality. Uh, the erosion of American influence in the region. You know, at one time before 1979, uh, the United States was really uh, the broker uh, uh, with Tehran and with Riyadh. In fact, uh, then President Richard Nixon called Saudi Arabia and Iran the twin pillars of American foreign policy uh, in the region, meaning the Persian Gulf. And both Riyadh and, uh, and Tehran were eligible to purchase any non-nuclear weapons in the American arsenal. Uh, how things have really changed uh, over the last 50 years, where now even um, a so-called uh, stalwart ally like Saudi Arabia uh, is no longer one that sees Washington as its sole benefactor, uh, its sole protector, uh, 90 years of a relationship which was forged starting in 1932 has now changed where Saudi Arabia has moved more to the center and is seeing itself open for business uh, from sources that do not only emanate from the West. So, um, with the Egypt is now talking as well with Turkey. Um, I just saw this, uh, I think this morning. I was reading that they're having these discussions. They're two of the biggest backers of the two governments in Libya, which makes me wonder whether these discussions could also go some way to bring in peace with Libya. We're starting to see in Syria, it's bringing people together. Syria is starting to normalise relations with a lot of Arab governments. I, I feel like this probably plays a part with the Iran-Saudi going on behind the scenes and Turkey as well getting involved. So... Do you think do you think it's likely that we could see peace and even elections in, in Libya anytime soon? And you know what? I, I, oh, go ahead, please. Sorry, Doctor. Just before you go on, I had a quick question that Hussein, I think it links so well to yours. It would be great if you can answer them both together. But with what you said before, with America being the broker, and you know how the American superpower is clearly 
um, diminishing now. How exactly is that going to change when it's pretty much all we know in the near past, at least? Well, there's a couple of things going on. First, if you if you permit me, uh, regarding the situation of whether this deal will create a domino effect toward greater diplomacy and mm. um, a shift away from um, war, uh, I think that there's every likelihood of that happening. Uh, on on the more proximate, uh, I think that that optimism is there for uh, Yemen. And we're already starting to see uh, small changes there, which could ameliorate the situation. The fact that uh, Bashar al-Assad is now uh, traveling and is being received in uh, in the capitals of many Arab states, which uh, were responsible until fairly recently in seeking his ouster uh, and his demise within uh, within Syria is rather momentous. And as you said before, with Egypt and with um, uh, Turkey, having a rapprochement which may then spill over in changing uh, the landscape, so to speak, politically and otherwise in Libya. What I think we're seeing then is a recognition that proxy wars uh, are not very helpful. And particularly given the kind of economic dire straits in which countries like Turkey and Egypt find themselves, uh, the idea then of actually funding, supporting wars elsewhere is something that perhaps for Egypt is not as critical of, of an issue because Sisi has a strong hold on power there. But for somebody like Erdogan, who uh, is up for uh, re-election in, uh, uh, in two months, these issues are, of course, going to be front and center when it comes to uh, the Turkish public. Uh, saying that we have a myriad domestic issues and challenges and you are uh, seemingly diverting attention uh, by supporting a situation in Libya. What does that have to do with the price literally of bread and, and basic staples uh, in, in Turkey? So that idea then of civil society uh, making that inquiry of both Erdogan and Sisi uh, factors into why then proxy wars are, are something that are hardly a, uh, a luxury or an indulgence uh, and let alone a, a necessity for these countries. When you ask the question, uh, Sister Fatima, about what does it then mean regarding the, uh, uh, the American presence and its decline, uh, I would be hard pressed to see anybody in the United, or I should say in the region uh, that is necessarily lamenting that uh, with the possible exception, of course, of, uh, of of Israel, and more so because Israel is now having not only its internal uh, and domestic political issues uh, going on with the Netanyahu government uh, seeking judicial overhaul, and the fact that the internal uh, debate within Israel is really asking the question about whether its democratic institutions can hold firm but also then wondering what is Israel's positionality within the broader uh, Middle East. After all, three years ago, uh, it was with a tremendous amount of optimism that uh, Israel uh, brought forth with, of course, uh, the uh, Trump administration's uh, involvement, mm. the Abraham Accords, bringing the United Arab Emirates and bringing Bahrain into an open and formal 
recognition of diplomatic ties. It had always been suspected that um, the UAE and Bahrain had de facto uh, relations with uh, the state of Israel. Now it was out in the open. And there had certainly been a tremendous amount of uh, anticipation and dare I even say uh, obsession and expectation that Saudi Arabia would follow suit. And I find it really interesting that it happened now because there was uh, a certain kind of rationalization that was occurring in Israel and in other quarters, including the United States, that perhaps what was the stumbling block, what was the obstacle for uh, the Saudis to join the Abraham Accords was actually King Salman. Uh, himself in his mid-80s, infirmed, uh, uh, possibly even suffering from dementia, that uh, his son, the future king, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, he has been waiting to, uh, to join the Abraham Accords. He has been seeking to normalize relations with Israel, and he is just biding his time uh, that once his father passes, that he will then uh, do this. The fact that this deal uh, was uh, memorialized under King Salman uh, is undeniably uh, a rebuke of the architecture of uh, the, the Abraham Accords. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, right now in Jerusalem, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, along with all of the other things that are on his uh, head and on his plate, is probably wondering, how could this happen? How could I misread this? Uh, how come I'm shocked by it? Because all of that uh, rather bellicose language of uh, threatening Iran, uh, trying to go ahead and isolate Iran by bringing all the Gulf states on side, that seems to have evaporated. Uh, mm. Or at the very least, it seems as though the Abraham Accords three years on uh, is not uh, living up to what certain expectations were, at least uh, from the West. So you uh, you said earlier that you were just in uh, Baku. It feels yes. like um, every time we're having um, looking into geopolitics, something good happens like this deal, and then suddenly there's a new tensions boiling up. We've been hearing the last week about um, Azerbaijan and Iran having the tensions over the border. Was there any sense of that in Azerbaijan or is that just something the media is playing up at the moment? Uh... It, it seems as though it's really more of something that the media is, is contriving. And part of that has to do with the fact that three years on, uh, the issue of Nagorno-Karabakh mm. uh, has certainly tilted in favor of, uh, of Azerbaijan. And what, as we are talking about uh, surprising negotiations here, uh, it probably caught a lot of people, at least on the surface, by surprise that Russia, in brokering that ceasefire between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, mm. was an honest broker or at least a neutral uh, broker in that particular thing. This really represents a departure from what was, at least traditionally and historically, uh, a favoring of uh, Yerevan uh, by Moscow. Uh, traditionally, Christian um, uh, communities. But here we find that the realities and the practicalities of geopolitics stepped in. Uh, Russia uh, having an alignment with 
an oil and natural gas rich Azerbaijan, uh, recognizing that Azerbaijan is also a conduit between Russia and Iran. Mm -hmm. So the idea of then trying to uh, make an antagonistic narrative between Baku and Tehran uh, doesn't really fit the script. Uh, it, it seems as mm -hmm. though it would be uh, illogical for uh, this to be uh, a moment where tension and conflict uh, would emerge between these two countries. You know, I have a really quick question, actually, regarding that um, mindset with um, Hussein instantly thought, you know what, one step forward, two steps back. And we are programmed in a way to think that, right? Because human rights in our head, it's been changed to this kind of unreachable idea. Um, um, so what I would say to that kind of comment is that um, I think we're often kind of seeing that that negative kind of news out there a lot that, oh, um, human rights is um, problematic. There's something going on. There's something quite negative. Um, I think there is something positive in there. I don't think we're so much in a case of one step forward, two steps back. I'd say we're more in a case of um, we're kind of taking one step forward, but then we're not taking 10 steps back. We're realizing that there's still like so many more steps in front of us because the field of human rights, there's a lot of change that needs to happen. There's a lot of um, decolonial um, narratives that need to be um, present in these conversations. Um, oftentimes when I'm studying, we kind of come across something and we're talking about the negatives of it all the time. Um, I think there are positives. I think um, in human rights, you know, you can see that there's a lot of groundwork that is already um, existent. And yeah. working on it is what we have to do. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the whole, you know, how do we kind of, um, in terms of like the Middle East and such, I think we kind of look at human rights through a very westernized perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so I've often made this argument that, you know, if you look at human rights, it's made by the West, it's made by Europe, it's made by their standards. If we were to kind of take human rights and apply it to the Middle East, apply it to those kind of standards, there's already things like the Cairo Declaration of Human Rights. Um, mm -hmm. And we kind of look into those kind of decolonial narratives and decolonial kind of um, studies on human rights. We might be able to find the steps forward that we need. Mm -hmm. I think also, I mean, I if we're are. thinking about... If we're thinking about Israel, right, they must be looking at this deal thinking, oh, crap, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. this isn't looking good for us. This, And then, you know, in terms of what their vision of human rights or, you know, what they want to call human rights, mm -hmm. this, this doesn't align with that. So would it ever be the case? And, you know, Dr. Taiz Khan, if you want to, like, jump in with this as well, would it ever be the case that a deal like this could be fully accepted? When you ask fully accepted, I mean, do you mean by sort of by the international community or? Well, I think uh, what, the international what, community, who, who it would be difficult. But for example, right. even in like, for example, Iran, you've got so many people that um, understand, you know, the revolution may um, be better for the country or have been better yeah. for the country and you know going forward it's better than what it would have been and so yeah. and so forth but 
within the country there's so much dis there's mm. there's dispute with that so is there a dispute right. with, within Brits as well, well to, the, to the question as well because um when when you say fully accepted in Iran as well it makes me think the the idea was to spread the Islamic revolution yeah uh, uh, and it, uh, Saudi Arabia is a monarchy like the Shah was, like Iran was under the Shah. Do you think Saudi Arabia, Iran will accept this now as this is how it's going to be the relationship? And it sort of shows a change in foreign policy of trying to spread the revolution. Do you think they've given up on that or? They can right. I, I think I think in some ways we're we're framing the question um, imprecisely uh, <laughs> when it comes to this idea of acceptance. Uh it is what it is. And I'm not sure that if we are wondering whether there are going to be dissenting voices to exploit, uh, especially those from outside the region, if that is really a, a reality or an eventuality to have happen. Mm -hmm. uh, when we look at, uh, at, at this particular deal, there is a, a word that oftentimes gets lost in this, and that's pragmatism. Now, uh, when it comes to the Saudis, uh, well, let's let's take Iran first, because I think that's perhaps the easier uh, explanation. Their level of skepticism, their level of suspicion, their level of cynicism of Western intervention, of course, goes all the way back to uh, even predating the revolution uh, to the time of uh, the overthrow of Mossadegh in 1953. So mm. this isn't, to borrow a very American term, uh, their first time at the rodeo uh, to understand then what's what's going on. Uh, they have, uh, in fact, in many ways, uh, developed uh, their understanding of their relations, their positionality with the West, with unfortunately quite a few adverse experiences. But at the same time, Iran has something that the West doesn't fully understand either. And mm -hmm. that is the culture of a civilizational arc which goes back thousands of years uh, even if one hears uh, Iranian leaders today whether it is former president uh, Hassan Rouhani former uh, foreign minister Javed Zarif former president Mohammad Khatami mm -hmm. uh, having heard all three of them speak in person I'm always uh, stunned by their invocation of a two and a half millennium-long uh, mm -hmm. historical arc, uh, one that predates the revolution, one that predates even Islam, to include within that uh, the period of the Zoroastrians uh, going all the way back to the Achaemenid dynasty. Mm -hmm. uh, there, are, there aren't that many civilizations that can make that claim to speak mm -hmm. in terms of four digits. Certainly the United States cannot. I mean, it's, it's, it's only a tenth of the age of, of, of Iranian civilization. Who else has that? Well, China does, for sure. Yeah, uh, China, Russia. Exactly. And so as a result of it, they see this in terms contextually of a broader historical arc and will accept it as being something that uh, is within their strategic uh, best interests, along with, of course, seeing how it's going to affect in the short term. Now, Saudi Arabia, I think, provides a little bit more of an intriguing idea, uh, a country which is very, very young, uh, if you think about it, really only about 90 years old, 
this year marks the 90th anniversary of the relationship or, uh, between the Standard Oil Company and, uh, and um, uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, the country may have become a kingdom in 1932, uh, but it really became a nation in 1933 with the founding of Aramco. Uh, that's mm -hmm. when people really started to care, it seems, certainly in the West. And here, all of a sudden, uh, what seems to be all of a sudden, a pivot of such dramatic proportions, Riyadh knowing fully well that uh, the rhetoric between Washington and Beijing is perhaps at an all-time high of antagonism. Uh, here in the United States, you would think that there, uh, uh, the country is preparing for war uh, against China. I mean, a, a spectacularly stupid idea, by the way. Uh, but, but still, uh, the complicity of uh, mainstream media in its efforts to demonize uh, uh, China uh, is an everyday occurrence. Making certain uh, false suppositions has, has become a cottage industry over here. But Saudi Arabia recognizes that perhaps the potency of the United States is not what it once was. Uh, they have recognized, I mean, it's no accident that we're talking about this on the uh, literally the 20th anniversary of uh, the Iraq war. That mm. was a telling moment for Iran. It was a telling moment for Saudi Arabia and really for the whole world that this rather vainglorious uh, campaign of acting like uh, cowboys uh, was going to uh, go ahead and be doomed uh, as we see the wreckage left behind in, in Iraq, a devastation of a country, devastation of a civilization there. And Saudi Arabia took notice. They took notice that uh, the United States would gladly and easily uh, uh, throw under the bus, so to speak, uh, a, a loyal ally in the form of Mubarak uh, in Egypt. And I'm not trying to defend Mubarak or anything. But the idea that uh, the relationship between Washington and Cairo was one that within the blink of an eye when the Arab Spring came 12 years ago, the United States was willing to look the other way as Mubarak was given his uh, exit papers. Mm. That sent a shockwave around the Gulf. And uh, Riyadh uh, was very prickly to this idea, thinking if they can do that to Mubarak, who's to say that they won't then abandon the House of Saud? And so the Saudis then uh, decided to uh, tack away and see who else might be um, willing to strike a deal. Now, with the Trump administration, it seemed as though it was the last real opportunity for the Saudis to engage in a robust way with an American administration. With Biden, we saw, of course, that this has not been the case over the last uh, two and a half years. And there is no uh, certainty and there's no confidence in uh, the American project being one where the Saudis want to put all of their resources. Uh, this may be a moment where, for the meantime, Saudi Arabia straddles the fence between East and West, the United States and China. But it seems as though all indications are that the trajectory are now that the Saudis would rather face the direction in which the sun rises uh, than the direction in which the sun is setting. I like that um, last I line. Wanna, yeah, I, I just want to add on, but Fatima, mm. you were saying how like Israel would be scared of this um, declarate, uh, sorry, peace talk. I actually think um, it's not actually something they might fear. And I would say you'd have to look at history. Um, 
going back to like the Cold War era, there was the Tashkent Declaration where Russia actually led um, a discussion between India and Pakistan and the US actually praised it. But when you look at it, it's now simply a footnote in history. It doesn't have, um, it's not held in high regard. It's not talked about really. And I think only time can actually tell us whether this peace deal itself is going to be a replication of history or if it is going to be something that Israel is going to be scared of. Mm. Now, I think um, it's, it's, for me, it, it seems like the biggest deal in the last 10 years that we've seen. It's actually very exciting times. Um, again, it, whether it holds and is another thing, but I think that doesn't take away whether just because it's not being mentioned much in the press, in the Western press at all, and they've tried to downplay it, um, I don't think that takes away from how important this is and how many deals are being made now with various countries around the Middle East who are allies. We've seen a new deal with Saudi Arabia and Ansar Allah the, the, uh, um, this week. I think it was this week or last week, which obviously were, this played a large part in it. Even Bahrain is talking with Iran. Some Iranians might see that as a, or some Bahraini Shias might see that as a bit of a betrayal by Iran. But um, there is sort of rapprochement going on there. So th I think it's a huge thing. I was just wondering whether how was, they came out with this deal with Ukraine and Russia that was straight away dismissed by the West. However, Zelensky's agreed himself to speak to, to Xi Jinping. Um, do you think this deal now could encourage uh, a similar deal with Russia and um, Ukraine? Absolutely. I mean, I think nothing breeds success like success. Mm. And uh, here we see the fact that um, uh, the kind of resistance to the deal, of course, is being spun as saying that it's really not a deal. It's a ceasefire and uh, allows Russia to so-called get away with it. I'd remind people that World War One ended not with a peace deal initially, it ended with an armistice. It ended with a ceasefire mm. on November the 11th of 1918. It wasn't until June the 28th of 1919 that the Treaty of Versailles was signed. Ah. Uh, so, so chronologically, it seems mm. as though it follows logic that a ceasefire precedes a, uh, a peace deal. Uh, it's interesting that in the Paris Peace Conference, Germany itself was not invited to the table. And here, I think what we find is a certain level of envy and frustration that this peace deal will most likely go through without uh, the usual suspects uh, sitting around the table. Mind you, they will still be in the earpiece of Zelensky and they will still be trying to influence him to say, hold out, hold out. Uh, we can help strike a deal. Uh, but no matter how um, resilient Ukraine may appear to be, and no matter how tenacious they are, uh, no one experiences what it feels like to be at war than the country where the bombs are actually falling. Yeah. So for the United States and for other countries, uh, the moral hazard uh, is is different. And so it becomes very convenient for them to say, you know, do this and do this when it's not uh, their blood and treasure that is, uh, uh, that is being affected. I would suspect that Zelensky is going to have to make a deal of some kind. Uh, I think that Russia is going to have to uh, compromise. Uh, what I see is that some of the status quo will be maintained, uh, meaning that Russia will retain 
uh, as it has for the last nine years, control over the Crimean Peninsula. They may get Mariupol, but I don't think that all of the areas that are under Russian uh, uh, authority now at the expense of Ukraine will remain so. Uh, what we see is the Chinese model, which is very, very important to understand, is that they always operate uh, based on one of the priorities being to have both sides save face. Uh, oh. This is very much a Chinese uh, conceit. And you see that that is what they're trying to do so that Putin can claim a victory of some kind. And so can uh, Zelensky. That is not something that really is within the Western, uh, the Western pathology. It oftentimes becomes winner take all. And the side which is determined and defined to be the aggressor or the one in the wrong is mm. then punished. And if history has taught us ever anything, it is that that kind of categorical punishment always has a consequence. This is what happened after the Treaty of Versailles with the punitive measures that uh, were placed on Germany, then leading to a Second World War. Uh, China doesn't operate uh, with with that and China is not necessarily uh, looking for uh, Xi Jinping to go to Oslo next year uh, to win a Nobel Prize. Uh, mm -hmm. They operate off other metrics. For them, it's about business. For them, it's about global influence. And here they are showing uh, their rather sophisticated and skillful way of achieving both. Thank you so much for that. Um... And I think, I, th I really do think we need a part two. <laughs> okay, anytime. I think, I think I have so many more questions after that, just because obviously the Treaty of Versailles and, and history and the way it may be repeating itself in some ways, it's such a deep topic. I think it would be um, good if we return to it maybe in a few months and just see what's held or what not. We'll see if uh, Turk, um, Ukraine and uh, Russia finally have mm. peace. Yeah, I that's... really am so excited to see what Zelensky decides to do. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe he'll uh, maybe he'll change into a suit. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but no, any 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 time, I would love to come back. Uh, these are fantastic topics. So thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you so much. much. I really appreciate your contribution. Really um, teach a lot. <laughs> absolutely, and thank you so much, Kenise, as well. <laughs> Um, not just for coming on to this episode, but for working behind the scenes. <laughs> so thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. If you would like to see us part two of this, do let us know. Um, you can contact us on our Instagram, DM us, let us know your thoughts. We'd love to hear them. And thank you so much for tuning in. See you soon, inshallah. Bye.